0: The scripture comes from 1 John 4 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they've not seen. And he has given us this command anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister.
1: Amen. Thank you, Meg. Well, welcome everyone once again. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, it's so good to have you. Uh, Today we are starting, this first Sunday of Lent, we are starting a brand new series entitled At One. And throughout this series, what we're doing is we're going to explore in depth the crucifixion of Jesus. Asking, why did Jesus die? Why did that have to happen? And what did Jesus's death accomplished. Now, part of the reason we're doing this is that we're entering into the season of Lent. Lent is the journey towards the cross that culminates in Good Friday and then in the resurrection. So narratively, liturgically, it makes sense that we would look at the cross in this season. But more importantly, the reason we wanted to spend an extended amount of time looking at the crucifixion of Jesus is that Very simply, the cross is at the very center of our faith. And how we understand the cross has the power to shape how we understand maybe everything else about our faith. How we understand the cross shapes how we see God you see the cross through one lens, or if you look through the lens of the cross in certain angles, in certain ways, you will see God in certain ways and certain angles. The cross has the power to shape how we read the Bible, it has the power to shape how we think about judgment or hell or other difficult or contentious issues in Christian thinking. The cross has the power to shape what we think about Christian practices. That text I love from 1 John, it says perfect love dispels fear. So if we have a vision of the cross that is perfect love, what does that do to our practices as Christians? Does it dispel our fear or does it fill us with more? How we see the cross shapes our Christian practices. How we engage one another, how we love one another, why we gather, the cross can cast a shadow or a light on so much of Christian living, Christian thinking, and Christian theology. And even though it is the center of our faith, and even though it is the concept that we sing about and talk about, the song selection today was so perfect for the beginning of this series. It's like someone plans it, which they do. They work really hard to plan it. You see these imageries, this language that pops up again and again. and yet I think even though we're so familiar with it, sometimes the cross... Isn't as big for us as it is in Scripture. So, we're going to spend these next couple of weeks exploring the cross. What is it? What is it accomplishing? Why is Jesus dying on it? And why is it good news? Now, the thing I love about Christianity, the thing I love about talking about the cross, is that on the one hand, talking about why Jesus died is very simple. It's really simple, it's really straightforward. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says this. This is 15, verse 1, and then 3 through 4. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So on the one hand, cross is simple. It's profound in its simplicity. Christ died for our sins. That statement is enough. We wouldn't have to go any further. We don't have to pull back the layers. We don't have to do more work for that to be a beautiful, meaningful, wondrous statement. I kind of think about it like a diamond. If you're holding a big diamond, like, like one that you would find in like an Indiana Jones movie, <laughs> and you were to look at it from a distance— That would be this statement. Christ died for our sins. That's enough. That's big. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But what makes it maybe even more amazing or equally amazing is that as you get near the diamond and begin to turn it and begin to move it around and begin to look at it from different perspectives, you see, oh, it's cut and there's angles and there's perspectives and it moves in these different directions and there's this whole complexity to the diamond that I get to look at. Christ died for our sins is enough, but as we explore that statement, a whole world of beautiful questions begin to emerge. What does it mean that Christ died according to the Scriptures? There's some kind of story there. There's some kind of narrative there. There's some kind of history there, some kind of context that helps us understand, oh, that's really interesting. And then what does Christ's death do For sins. For is an interesting word that feels like it's carrying a lot of weight, Mr. Paul. What does that mean, for? That means a lot of things. And how does Christ's death do something for our sins? Interesting. Each of those questions leads to a whole world of beautiful answers, beautiful ideas that we're going to begin to explore over the next couple of weeks. Those are the sides, so to say, of the diamond. The different pieces and facets and moments that make it up. As we begin to explore this, what we are doing, we're going to get a little nerdy for a second. What we are doing as we explore this conversation is we're talking about atonement theology. It's a big money word that no one needs to know. Atonement theology. And atonement is the biblical word that is often used to describe Christ's death. And it means literally at one mint. Sometimes words are that way. You just break them apart. You get everything you need to know. That's it. Atonement means at one mint. It means the work that Christ is accomplishing on the cross to make us one with him and with one another. It's the work that is happening to restore us to right relationship. Atonement, that phrase, is the diamond in its wholeness, right? That's oneness, the big work that's happening to make us right with God. But then in the world of atonement theology, there's other pieces and facets. Throughout scripture, there's biblical descriptions that help us make sense of what atonement is accomplishing. And then theologians later in time have taken those biblical descriptions and that big word, and they've created what we'll call atonement theory which are theological frameworks to help us understand what Christ's death is accomplishing. You can think about it like this. I've created a little uh, rubric here, set of things. Paul has just named these things for us in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to spend a bit of time talking about these four different ideas as we enter into this atonement series so that we are on the same page. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I've preached to you the gospel of which Christ's death is a part, but not the whole. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is revealing who God is and accomplishing God's saving work, which is life, death, and resurrection, and all of the things that come with it. That's gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That stands above. But a part of gospel essential to gospel, to this good news that we believe, is atonement, Christ's death for our sins. That's the diamond that we were looking at earlier. But then, if you want to understand what the atonement is, the Bible never simply defines it in one way. Instead, what the writers of the Bible do is provide lots of imagery for us that get at different perspectives, different angles of the atonement diamond. If you go to this next slide, I tried to provide a handful of the different atonement images that pop up through Scripture. These are only some of them. There's many more, but these are some of the biggest ones that you see. Biblical descriptions, you're probably familiar with some of these. Sometimes Jesus' death is referred to as Jesus dying as the Lamb of God or a scapegoat. Sometimes atonement is talked about in redemption language, which pulls from Old Testament stories that we'll explain in the weeks to come. Maybe you've heard of the atonement as a description of Jesus dies as a substitute on our behalf. In 1 Corinthians 15, the same passage that we've been in, Paul goes on to say how Jesus' death is victorious over death, the enemy, the enemy and sin, so victory image pops up. Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for many, another image or description of what atonement is accomplishing. Lost and found, Jesus loves to describe his work as finding lost sheep, lost sons, lost coins. Healing serpent, this is one that uh, no one's going to know where that one comes from, but it's there. John 3, verse 14, Jesus is compared to a serpent that's lifted up on a stick from an Old Testament story. Everybody's favorite story. (laughs) And then justification. This is maybe the most famous one that Paul uses, that Christ's atonement justifies us. These are different descriptions. Important images that the writers of Scripture use to help us understand what is being accomplished on the cross. These are true. These are good. These are beautiful. They're all a part of the atonement diamond. And the reason I want to emphasize this is that sometimes— we lose one of these descriptions. We lose one of these images and all of a sudden our atonement theology gets smaller or more reduced. It loses some of its complexity, its bigness, its weightiness. But as you continue to read the story of Scripture, there's even more images about what Christ's death is accomplishing than these. These images, these descriptions, these words help us understand what Christ is accomplishing. And then they lead to this final category we'll call atonement theories. Atonement theories are different than our descriptions that we see in Scripture. These are frameworks that human theologians, human writers, have written in order to make sense of the complexity of images we see throughout Scripture. These atonement theories, hear me, are good. They are beautiful. They are helpful. They are not Bible. That's really important for us to understand because I have seen more divisions in churches happen over these theories than maybe anything else. And the author of these theories would be mad about that. They are frameworks to help us understand what atonement is accomplishing. They take the imagery, the descriptions, the bigness of the gospel and the diamond of atonement, and they give us tools to help us understand it. But they live in subservience to Scripture. They live in subservience to the revelation of Jesus. They are good. They are right. They are helpful. But, and I've been guilty of them. I've been really guilty of this, but sometimes what happens is that our theories get elevated to the place of atonement, gospel descriptions. We start to confuse our theories with our gospel, and when we do, we often reduce or reconfigure the beauty, the bigness of the cross to fit within our theories, which makes our theory into an idol. When we talk about God's saving work, you may not like this, I don't like this, we're entering into mysterious waters. In any moment that we think a theory perfectly explains how the infinite God of the universe has saved us, you just might want to back up a bit You know what I mean? Paul says the cross is foolishness to the world. That means it probably won't always make sense. In Ephesians 3, Paul says the gospel is a mystery. How are Gentiles made one of us? He's like, I don't get it all the way. I just know that Christ's death has accomplished it. And here's some theories and here's imagery that helps me make sense of it. But there's a kind of certainty that sometimes we want in our theories that presses us into places of idolatry, not worship or humility. Humility? Just invented that word. You can use it all you want. <laughs> we have to hold to the fact that there is mystery in this conversation. God is saving the world by entering it, being with us, dying on behalf of it. That's big, beautiful. Let us not reduce it. Let us not lose it. Let's not elevate our theories too high that we cause division. But instead, let's keep our order of operations right. Because when we let our theories become too important, we lack humility I think we lose wonder. We threaten our unity. These things are meant to draw us together. So our order is important. And my hope throughout this series in the next couple of weeks is that as we begin to investigate what atonement is, the way we're going to do this is we're going to spend most of our time in the category of biblical descriptions. How do the writers of the Bible describe atonement? So what does it mean when Jesus is called the Lamb of God? Or what does it mean when Jesus says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many? What do those images teach us about the atonement? Now, sometimes that will touch into these world of theories, but we're going to try to live in the category of descriptor and above. Descriptor, atonement theology, gospel. And my prayer for us is that as we do this, we would sort of disrupt some of our theories that have become idols. And we would gain a much bigger, more robust, more biblical understanding of what's happening in the cross. So the way that we're going to do this is that this week and next week, we're going to do some laying of the groundwork. So we're talking about some theories right now. Then we're going to run into three big ideas Next next week, we're going to look at that phrase, according to the scriptures, the story of atonement. And then in the weeks following, we're going to talk about a few big big chunks of these ideas or these categories. We're going to talk about representation, redemption, rescue, reconciliation. The alliteration was not that intentional, but once it was there, I just had to stick with it the whole way through. I am a pastor, after all. The four R's of atonement, you could say. Representation, redemption, rescue, and reconciliation. Those would be the primary categories of biblical descriptors that we will look at. And my hope is that as we do, our understanding of the cross will expand, our hope will expand, and our conviction about what God is doing will begin to expand. But before we get into those ideas— And as we kind of move into today's text, there is three big ideas that I want to give you in the remainder of our time together. They're kind of emerging out of this. Three big ideas about our atonement theology that you will see happening again and again in the different descriptors, the different moments throughout Scripture. These are three big ideas that I think are foundational pieces of our atonement theology. And I'm just going to name them all for you right now, and then we're going to look through them. Here's the first one. God is just like Jesus. Number two, Jesus on the cross is the perfect snapshot of God. And number three, the cross creates loving oneness or onement with God and others. These three big ideas will show up again and again in our different pictures of atonement, our different descriptors of of atonement. But since they are the big ideas, I thought it would be helpful for us to just break them down in their three parts. So here's the first one. Big idea number one. God is just like Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 15, the apostle writes, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And then in Hebrews 1 verse 1 through 3, the author really loved this moment, says it this way, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through him also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and what? The exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. Now we believe that Jesus is God. It's pretty standard Christian theology. But the thing that I want to emphasize here is, yes, Jesus is God. But God is also like Jesus. God is like Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we are seeing what God is like. When Jesus eats with the outcast, it is because God eats with the outcast. When when Jesus moves towards those who are on the fringes of society, it's because that is what God is like. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees, it's because what God does is confront religious institutions and structures of power that have been exclusionary and kept people from his presence. When Jesus moves, it's because that's how God moves. Jesus says in John 5, verse 19, whatever the Father does, I do. When we look at Jesus, we are seeing the exact representation and image of the Father. God is just like Jesus. Pastor Brian Zahn says it this way. I just like this quote. He says, God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. And God has always been exactly like Jesus. I don't know what image of God that you have in your head. I don't know what image you've brought from tradition or which one you inherited. Or maybe as you were reading scripture, some images were be- uh, began to process in you. But God is always like Jesus. But love, again, what the writer of First John says, perfect love dispels all fear. So you have an image of God that doesn't look like Jesus, but looks like a punitive judge or some distant warlord. But it's not Jesus. God always looks like Jesus. That's the heart of our atonement theology. That's the heart of our gospel, is that Jesus has revealed what God is like. That leads us to the second idea. God is just like Jesus and on the cross, in Jesus' death, we get a perfect snapshot of God and God's nature. Theologian Bradley Jersik says, the cross is the revelation of God par excellence. Which does not mean that the cross is the only revelation of God. It's the reason I use the language of perfect snapshot. It's like a potent compressed image that gives us lots of information, but it's not the only important information. Jesus' life is a revelation of God. As we just said, Jesus' eating, drinking, hanging out are all revelations of God. Pentecost is a revelation of God. Paul says in Romans that nature is a revelation of God. So there's lots of things that are revealing to us who God is and how God works, but on the cross, we see a perfect snapshot or a revelation par- excellence. In this moment, this compressed moment in time, we are seeing a perfect representation of what God is like, and how God acts, and how God works in the world. And what is revealed? The writer of 1 John 4 tells us, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning, there's that word, sacrifice for our sins. God is love. Jesus on the cross is revealing to us the fundamental reality, nature, characteristic, and orientation of our God, love. Love. And not just any love, but self-sacrificial love, a love that dies for enemy, a love that makes room in himself for other people, a love that is non-coercive, a love that creates a table where everybody belongs, a love that looks like the cross. On the cross, we see what God is like. We see how God works. And it is not a deviation or an anomaly from God's nature. This is what God has always been like. God has always been a God who dies for his enemies. Because God is just like Jesus. It is so important for us to understand this as the bedrock or the foundation of our atonement theology. The cross is the love of God displayed. And all of our other theories of atonement have to correspond to what Scripture is saying about the cross, that it is the revelation of God's love. So if our theory looks different, something is off. Sometimes I think uh, when we talk about the cross, or we talk about theology, we talk about atonement, uh, we have a love-but theology. What I mean by that is that we know God is loving— but we often want to condition God's love with other characteristics or attributes. And so we say God is loving and the cross is loving, but God is also judgmental. We say God is loving, but he's also holy. So hold up on your love, talk a bit. We want to condition or limit or restrict God's love. God is loving, but God is also holy. But that's not what the text says. The text says God is love. And love is not conditioned or limited or restricted. No, no, God is love. Now, do I believe that God is holy? Yes. And I believe that holiness only makes sense as an expression of love. Do I believe that God judges sin? Of course I do but I believe God judges sin as God dies on a cross. And that judgment always looks like a self-sacrificial God. Holiness does not condition love. Holiness only makes sense as love in action. Judgment does not limit love. Judgment only makes sense as an expression of God's love, a love that is displayed for us in the cross. It is why we have to get this right in our foundational understanding of what the atonement is. If it is something other than a description of God's love, we're going to go off. And the cross will become an obstacle for our own faith or an object of fear. But again, perfect love dispels fear. And the next part of that verse is because fear has to do with punishment. How often does our cross imagery look like that versus dispelling fear? No, the very heart of the cross is an expression of our God who is just like Jesus and whose very nature, whose very action, and whose very work in the world is and always will be self-sacrificial love. So God is just like Jesus. Idea number two. The cross is a perfect snapshot of our God's nature and reality and orientation and action in the world. And that leads to idea number three. The cross creates loving oneness with God and with others. Just look at the language here. I didn't put it up on the screen because I want to read you a a chunk of it. But the language that you heard in Meg's reading of 1 John 4, verse 7 through 8, The writer says, Let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been loved of God. Verse 11 through 12, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Verse 13, This is how we know that we live in him, and he in us. He has given us his spirit. So if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Verse 23 to 21, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he who has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. The language that runs throughout 1 John is about oneness. It's about relationship. It's about connection. Our connection to God and our connection with one another. Paul will use other language throughout Scripture. The dividing wall of hostility gets torn down is the language of Ephesians 2. 2 Corinthians 5, the work of reconciliation. Each of these ideas are trying to get at what Paul calls in Ephesians 3.6 the manifold mystery of the gospel that you and I would somehow do this together. The cross, its work, its purpose, is relational oneness. At-one-ment. With us and God, and with us and others. There's lots of descriptions of that, lots of theories about how that works and what that does, but it is always about the expression and participation of God's love in and around us. That's what the cross does. These three big ideas are the foundation of atonement theology. God is like Jesus The cross reveals God to us, and the cross creates loving one with God and with others. There's a lot more to talk about. In the weeks to come, we'll get into the descriptions, we'll get into some of the theories, we'll walk through Scripture to talk about the story of atonement. What are all the things that are contributing and participating in this story? But I didn't want us to get there until we got these three foundational ideas in our hearts and on our minds, and down to, like, in our bones. Because I think our atonement theology can start to go off course so fast when we lose these three ideas, that God is like Jesus. The cross reveals God's nature, and the cross creates loving oneness, or oneness with God and others. I just want to ask you, as you hear that and begin to reflect on it, What would happen in us if we believed that? We just got done doing a series through the Sermon on the Mount where we get to hear Jesus' vision of a kind of love that says no to revenge, a kind of love that says no to having enemies because love makes friends or makes enemies into family. I think this is the kind of love that does that cross shaped, sacrificial love. What might it do to our practice of the Christian life? What we think about when we mean repentance or confession or prayer. How might we read Scripture differently? If we knew that the very heart of it and the very center of it was a God who is just like Jesus. And that's what we were searching for and looking for and trying to encounter as we read Scripture. How about we think about our ethics and our love for one another differently if we believe that when we loved others sacrificially, we were finding ourselves right at the heart of God's love for us? There's a prayer that Paul the Apostle offers for the church in Ephesians. I've just been thinking about so much and have been praying for us as a community all week. And I want to read it to you because I think I just think this prayer is such a good articulation of what I hope and bigger what I think Jesus hopes for us as a church when it comes to experiencing his love. This is how the Apostle Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. He says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? Because I want you to have strength and power through the spirit. Why? So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith and being you might be rooted and established in love and you might have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how deep is God's love. Paul's like, you need the spirit because you can't possibly imagine how big this is. So you need the Spirit to strengthen your inner being, to give you the power to understand what I'm talking about with this cross-shaped, cruciform, sacrificial kind of love. So I pray the Spirit would come upon you so that you could know how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What? I want you to know love through the power of the Spirit that surpasses understanding. And when you begin to have this work in you, that's the fullness of God at work. You see, what if our understanding of God's love was like that? That's why we sing about the cross. So, why Paul will say, I boast only in the cross because the cross is the revelation of God to us who is what? Just like Jesus, perfect love. So I miss you in a moment. We're going to gather at this table. We're going to continue to sing. We're going to continue to worship. We're going to pray together. And as you do, I just ask that you would take this prayer with you. Would you ask the Spirit to make this kind of love, cross-shaped love, real in you and in the world around you and in your families and in your communities? And as Heather invited us to pray at the beginning in all the places you long for restoration and hope. Would you bring that prayer to this table where every single week, what do we do? We practice the love of God. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is the signs and the symbols and the expressions of this new love covenant made possible for you. So, Missy, would you bring that prayer to this table and ask the Spirit to make love this real? Let me pray this prayer over us together and then we'll continue to worship. For this reason, God, we pray. From you, every single one of us is named. In our diversity, and our complexity, and our beauty, we find our shared name in the mystery of your love. God, we pray today that in your glorious riches, you might strengthen us with the power through your spirit deep inside of us so that we could dwell with Christ and that dwelling and living and following and participating in Jesus, that we would be rooted and established in love so that we would have the power together to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep your love in Christ is for us. God, fill us to the measure with your fullness. Root us in love. And grant us the power to participate. We pray these things in your amazing name. Amen.